0: The following resource is from LMPC.org, and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at LMPC.org slash give.
1: A reading from Romans, chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, both yours and mine I do not want you to be unaware brothers that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the gentiles I am under obligate obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith this is the word of the Lord you may be seated. I welcome those who are now joining us live in the fellowship hall as well to this Lord's Day worship. Today is a day that we celebrate annually. The George Long preaching series was established by the LMPC session in 2001 to honor longtime pastor George Long who served at LMPC through a season of spiritual renewal and revival in the 70s and 80s. He held fast to the word of God Amidst strong pressure at times to do otherwise. In my office is his Bible. In the front cover, he wrote, this book has kept me from being lost. May I never in any sense lose it. That's what's underneath the George Long preaching series. May we never in any sense lose the authority of the word of God and its preaching. And so we celebrate our Savior's faithful use of His holy word in our midst through Dr. George Long as He called us back to the primacy of the Word of God. And we celebrate that today. Dr. Long died in 2016. This morning, our George Long Preaching Series guest is Alistair Begg. He is the senior pastor of Parkside Church near Cleveland, Ohio. He's been in pastoral ministry since 1975. He became the senior pastor at Parkside Church near Cleveland, Ohio, in 1983. He's been there 40 years. He continues to lead that congregation and teach God's word Sunday by Sunday. And many of you also may know him through his daily and weekend program, Truth for Life, distributed through 1,900 radio networks across the United States, through truthforlife.org and via YouTube podcasts and all of the other listening platforms. What I am most appreciative of as a beneficiary of the preaching and teaching ministry of Alistair is his unwavering commitment to the word of God and his delight and determination to lift up the person and work of Jesus Christ and the gospel revealed in the word. For your faithfulness as a herald of the gospel Alastair, Alistair, we say to you, thank you. And we invite you now, come and preach the word of God to us. Well, let me encourage
0: you to have Romans chapter one open or in your bulletin to see it uh, so that you can check and see whether what I'm saying is actually in the Bible. It's always very important. Uh, Before we look to that though, I want to say first of all, thank you to Brian for the privilege of being in this pulpit. I have known of this place for quite some long time and have wondered what it would be like to get up on this mountain. And uh, here I am. Uh, I wonder, did uh, God as creator fashion the highlands of Scotland in all of their pristine beauty and then just take it up a notch in the mountains of Tennessee? Because it surely is a very lovely place. I looked at the list of those whose names have preached in this uh, series before, Uh, some of them now in glory, some of them uh, personally known to me, And I count that a privilege as well to be included in that number. I also should acknowledge the fact that the instigation of my being here was due to a little lady who's a friend of my wife and myself. Uh, Her name is um, Betsy Caldwell. So if you want to hold anybody responsible for my being here, then see her. However, uh, not only did she invite me here, but she promptly left the country so that she's not even here now as I come. (laughs) I I think perhaps she had a foreboding of what might happen, so, so she left. Anyway, with all that said, it's a privilege to be here this morning and again, God willing, this evening. Just a brief prayer before we look to the Bible, an old Anglican prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen. Well, our text is not all of the passage that was read, but essentially just verses 16 and 17. Admittedly, familiar material for a congregation like this, and providing for us a forceful reminder on Father's Day of the wonder of the Father's love towards us. Uh, See, writes John, what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called uh, children of God. Uh, Made memorable for us in the hymn how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. And it is a word that is necessary for those who are wondering and wandering, and it is an important word for those of us who profess to believe. It is also good news in a bad news world. It is not difficult to engage in conversation with people at the moment of all kinds of backgrounds and persuasions and to find a spirit of unanimity on one matter. And that matter being simply that our world is broken. There is an agreement on that the point of disagreement has to do with how did it get broken and how may that brokenness be fixed. In an introduction to a book called Light of the World, uh, George Vigel writes as follows, the world that we live in is a world that has lost its story, a world in which the progress promised by the humanisms of the past three centuries is now gravely threatened by understanding of the human person that reduce our humanity to a congeries of cosmic chemical accidents, a humanity with no intentional origin, no noble destiny, and thus no path to take through history. That is a fairly elaborate statement that is earthed in the futility and emptiness that is so visible in many of our younger people who have been brought up believing that I was born by chance, I prolong myself as best as I can, and I die and I know not where to go. Surely, surely it is an opportunity for us to proclaim the good news of the gospel. I want to consider this from three perspectives. First of all, noticing that it is from Paul a personal declaration, then recognizing that it is divine revelation, and then realizing, too, that it is of universal application. So, it's fairly straightforward, and you will be able to tell whether I'm making progress or not. So, first of all, it's a personal declaration. It is from the Apostle Paul. In other words, it is from one whose personal life had actually been transformed by the very good news that he is now reminding these Roman believers about. Because Paul, of course, as you know, was once Saul of Tarsus. He was a religious man. He was a prestigious man, good background, good education, good social context. And yet at the same time, He was a man breathing out threats and murders and strategies because he was convinced that this story that some of these strange people were now propagating about Jesus of Nazareth being risen from the dead, this must of necessity be stamped out. And then, of course, his world was turned upside down because he met Jesus. He met him in a dramatic way, in a way that probably none of us have or ever will and God met with him and spoke to him, and he suddenly realized. And what happened to him is true of what happens to every person who discovers who Jesus is and why he came. It's not all that happens, but these three elements are obvious in Paul. He had a whole new view of Jesus. When he met Jesus, his view of Jesus changed— He thought that Jesus was a fraud. He thought that anybody who was uh, extolling his virtues was a danger to society. And he got a new view of Jesus, and he got a whole new view of the followers of Jesus. He was on his way to Damascus to make sure that they would be imprisoned. By the time he has encountered this, then he is making his way in order that he might join them, in order that he might meet them in the synagogue. Some people I know are just like that. They used to say, oh, church? i never want to be anything to do with church. I go there twice a year just to keep my ticket stamped, but I'm not really interested in it at all. And then every so often, usually a man, and he would eventually come, cajoled in some way. And he became what I call a change jingler. Uh, He just jingled his change. He couldn't sing the songs. He didn't believe them. He wasn't really interested in them. But I watched him over time, and I discovered that he became more than a change jingler— and suddenly began to sing the songs. And when I finally went to him, he said, Oh, yes, I have a whole new view of Jesus and a whole new view of church. And with Paul, I have a whole new view of God's mercy, of his mercy. You see, Saul of Tarsus was a proud man. He was pretty clear when he writes about his background. And it caused him to be uncovered in such a way that he realized that while he was so convinced that he was on the side of moral rectitude, he was actually the chief of sinners, as he puts it, and he needed mercy. Some of you who are involved in education or in business will be uh, on the receiving end of these photographers that come from time to time because your manual or your business profile needs to be upgraded. And they sit you in the room, and you sit on the chair, and they tell you everything to do. And you may be tempted to say to the photographer, now, last time my photograph wasn't very good, and I would like this time for the photograph to do me justice. To which the photographer, if he's brave enough, replies, sir, what you require is not justice but mercy. (laughs) And that is exactly what is at the heart of Christian testimony. It is from Paul and it is to his readers in Rome. That's a long way away from here just now, but it is within the orb of our understanding. The people who were the initial recipients of this letter were living under and in the context of the proud might of imperial Rome. All of the structures of civil society were driven under the context of the caesar people would meet one another in the morning as they went to business or to the market and they would greet one another by saying caesar is lord it was a culture that had a place for all the gods to theu all the gods could have a place in the roman pantheon just as long as nobody was prepared to suggest that there was one supreme god before whom all the other gods are actually idols so the people who were the believers in Rome were under pressure, if you like, to keep their thoughts to themselves. In other words, had lived in an environment not very different from our own, the environment of the cancel culture, where the one thing you mustn't ever do is declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the father No one will care if you have a t-shirt that says on the front, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That won't get you in trouble. What will get us in trouble is when it says on the back, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That is the issue. And that was the issue for these believers in Rome. They would be happy to include a Jesus in their pantheon. But if they were to declare that Caesar is not Lord— but Jesus is Lord, then things would become radically different. Now, you will notice, I hope, that he is writing to believers. This is not an evangelistic treatise. It has an evangelistic flavor to it, of course, but he's writing to believers. Because, you see, the role of a pastor is not so much to be innovative, mercifully, but the role of a pastor is to keep reminding us of the things we know so that we don't forget them saying over and over again, these things really matter. And so, when Peter writes, he does the same thing. I intend always to remind you of these things so that you may know them. And Paul writes to the believers, and he says, it is important that you understand this about the gospel. Because unless a church family is framed by the gospel, it will become framed by something else. Unless a church family understands the nature of God's grace— and the mercy that is delivered to us, then it runs the risk of becoming merely moralistic, or even worse, legalistic, or any otheristic for that matter. But where the gospel is at the heart of a person's life and at the center of a congregation, then it will actually become palpably obvious to people. And so Paul is saying to them, You need to know that I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Later on, he's going to write to Timothy in his final letter, and he's going to say to him, Now, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the gospel or of me, the servant of the gospel. Uh, the history uh, suggests, and I don't know where they come up with this, it's questionable, really. But. Uh, The notion is that Paul was a certain kind of little man. Uh, The description that I have—I don't know if you've ever heard this, and I see it's questionable—but it's worth pondering. He was an ugly little man—I mean, that's politically incorrect to start with—he was an ugly little man with beetle brows, bandy legs, bald head, hook nose, bad eyesight, and possessing no great rhetorical gifts. Apart from that, he was fabulous. In other words, he wouldn't be the person that you would immediately say, well, let's have him for the George Long preaching series. I mean, he's a funny little man, for goodness sake. Do you remember James Carville, 1992? This great line. <laughs> only, his only great line as far as I'm concerned, but anyway, <laughs> um, where he came up with it, it's about the economy, stupid or as you say, stupid. It was about, It's about the economy. So, here Paul is reminding us it's about the message. It's not about the messenger, that God would put his treasure in earthen vessels, a funny man like Saul, a strange person, the great antagonist against the gospel, becomes the foremost writer of the New Testament. God is in the business of doing this, reaching down into the unlikely with the power of, Of the gospel. Now, why is he saying this? He's saying to them, I want you to know that I am not ashamed of the gospel. The inference is, and I don't want you to be ashamed either. He tells them that he has been set aside for the gospel, he's been commissioned to the gospel, he is eager to preach the gospel. So do not be ashamed. Now, if we're honest, it's not difficult to be ashamed, is it? When you find yourself in conversation on the golf course and the question comes around to not just religious topics or when you're in a meeting somewhere in business or in the realm of education, and you know that your friends are intelligent, you know that they're upright, and you know that in their heart of hearts they think you're nuts Because, after all, as Paul reminds us, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, actually, uh, a congregation such as this this morning will divide itself along those lines. You may be here this morning as a result of an invitation from somebody. Perhaps your wife dragged you in here, and you haven't forgiven her yet, and so it goes on. But inside, you're saying to yourself, no, 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 I don't, I'm not buying that program at all. That's actually foolish to me. You see, because the gospel is an affront to people's pride, to their intellectual pride, and to their moral pride. Because when we say what the Bible says about the good news, about Jesus dying on the cross for sin and so on— our friends are tempted to say, you know, I'm too clever to believe that. That's intellectual pride. Or they say, I'm too good to need that. That's moral pride. And until God does something, that will never change. That's our second point, because what Paul is saying in his declaration is exactly that, that God has done something and in the text you will see it. For in it, this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's revealed. It is manifested. It is declared. It is made known. Now, that phrase, the righteousness of God, uh, was a huge bugbear to a Roman Catholic monk called Martin Luther. In 1505, Martin Luther was just twenty-one. That's when he became a monk. And he became a monk because he was consumed with the question, how can I possibly be ever good enough to be accepted by God? And when you read his exercises, he was diligent in them all, fasting, praying, confessing his sins, and constantly wrestling with what he said was his guilty conscience, longing to for peace with God. On one occasion, he goes up to Rome, thinking that there, in this great center of Christology, he might finally make the breakthrough. But in actual fact, the breakthrough came not as a result of his investigation, good as it was, but as a result of God's disclosure of his revelation of himself. And the lights were turned on in the heart of a Roman Catholic monk called Luther when he understood that in the gospel, the righteousness of God was not an attainment, but a gift. Not an attainment, not an achievement, but a gift. And the phrase, he says, that had troubled him so much, the notion of the righteousness of God, became for him a gateway to heaven, because he suddenly was made aware of the fact that he had the thing by the wrong end. He was constantly endeavoring to put himself in the right position. Then he says, oh, I get it. In the gospel, God has provided for us in Jesus something that we could never produce in ourselves. Now, you may be here as a young person, and you are in the framework of this church and your parents are keeping you afloat, as it were, by their own spiritual lives. But you as a young fellow or a young girl may never have actually had this dawn upon you in a way that will turn your life the right way up. And until it does, you will be tempted to try constantly to do enough good things or to stop doing a lot of bad things in the hope that you might be able to tip the scales in your favor. But scales are for his It is a cross for Christianity, because the cross says we could never do it, and we don't have to, because he has done it. You see, the gospel, what is the gospel? I mean, the essence of the gospel is God saves us, we don't save ourselves. That's it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is, if you like, the activity of God in reaching out to rescue all who trust in Jesus by giving them, as an undeserved gift, a right standing before him. It is this message that transformed Saul of Tarsus a message he received, a message he was eager to proclaim, and a message of which he was not ashamed. Tonight, some of us will share in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. I look forward to it. It's a privilege. But God does not save through the sacraments. God saves through the gospel. Now, I feel confident in saying this, first of all, because of the Bible, and secondly, because if I understand anything of the ministry of George Long—and some of you were presumably here during the period, if he only died seven years ago—that this ministry that was exercised in a peculiar period of time in this church was a ministry of the gospel. It was a ministry that was absolutely convinced of the authority and sufficiency of the Bible and how the story of the Bible is the story of Jesus that the whole way to find your way around the Bible is to keep your eyes on Jesus. When you take your eyes off Jesus, you lose your way around the Bible. Sunday school taught us that. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, he's revealed. In the Acts, he's preached. In the epistles, he's explained. And in the book of Revelation, he is expected. And George Long was, if you like, a Bible man, a Jesus man, a gospel man. For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God, through the folly of what we preach, saved those who believe. Everyone, every person that God rescues, he rescues by the gospel. No one, anywhere, at any time, including before Jesus, will have been rescued by any other way. That is why we need our Bibles. Because when Paul writes to Timothy and he says, you know the Bible, he says, you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So I come to the Bible and I meet Jesus. I meet him as what? I meet him as the one he has proclaimed himself to be, that he has kept the law in all of its perfection, that he has borne the curse for all of us who have failed to do so, and he has opened up to us a door, a living door of entry into heaven. It is then by the Scriptures that we are made wise for this salvation. There is a great mystery, isn't there, in the way in which a person comes to faith in Jesus— It would be wrong when we talk in terms of revelation to suggest that somehow or another we're waiting for some peculiar, esoteric experience that bypasses the faculty of our minds. No, not at all. But nevertheless, it is mysterious, isn't it? It's a mystery that two people can sit side by side listening to the gospel being proclaimed. One person goes out and says, that was so amazing. I'm relying on Jesus, the one who has died for my sin. And the person directly next to him says, I haven't a clue what the fellow was talking about. I don't know what he was on about. Both heard the exact same words. Well, they heard the words of the preacher. One heard the voice of God. That's why we say to one another, today, if you hear God's voice." don't harden your heart. You can hear my voice. I can even hear it. It is God's voice we listen for. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in him. But I know whom I have believed. It is, then, a personal declaration— it is divine revelation, and finally, it is a word of universal application. That's what he says. This salvation is to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, Gresham Machen, who was, who left Princeton to begin Westminster Seminary, I just I brought this with me, and I don't want to miss the chance to quote it for you, because you can follow it up on your own. Just thinking about the mystery of what happens when a person comes to believe. If it were possible, if there were an intellectual road to God, if somebody could argue you intellectually to God, then all the emphasis would be simply on that—proving and disproving and arguing and so on. But nobody can, because sin has affected all of our faculties, including our ability to think. Machen, when he reckoned with this, says, there must be the mysterious work of the Spirit of God in the new birth. Without that, all our arguments are quite useless. But because argument is insufficient, it does not follow that it is unnecessary. What the Holy Spirit does in the new birth is not to make a man or a woman a Christian, regardless of the evidence, but on the contrary, to clear away the mists from their eyes— enabling them to attend to the evidence. So, the idea that if you're really going to become a true follower of Jesus, you're supposed to take your head off and put it under the pew and hope for the best. thats you never get there from the Bible. No, the, the application is universal. It is for everyone who believes, to the Jew and the Greek. Uh, perhaps when you seek to share the gospel that you do on this lovely mountain— and you meet with people, I certainly do, and they say things like this. Very, they're, they're very nice people, but they, they dismiss you. Uh, they damn you with faint praise, actually. After you've done your best to explain to them, they say, well, Alistair, I'm pleased for you. I can hear from your voice uh, that it really means something to you, but it's not for me. It's just not something that I need. Now, at that point, what are you going to say? You say, well, um, well, go ahead and hit your ball. That's fine. Uh, We could talk about that later. No, don't say that. Say, well, I got news for you. Salvation provided in the gospel is the need of every person in the entire world, including you, Mr. Smarty Pence, including you. It's something everyone needs. Everyone needs. For there is no one righteous, no one in a right relationship with God, no, not one. Romans 3.10. Go, go. Just go to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. They say to your friends, do you have gods in your life? Well, I don't think I have gods, but I do have a few idols. What is idolatry? Idolatry is just the attempt, on our part, To remove God and to replace Him with someone or something else. And the idols of our age are self depleting. They can never provide what they suggest, offering freedom and bringing us into bondage. So, what happens is that once a person has accepted the fact that we need the gospel, that we need salvation, then Either we're going to trust God to give it to us, or we're going to try and save ourselves. Either what we sang is our testimony, or it's not. The gospel is not unconditionally and universally operative into salvation. Credence involves also commitment. Faith is not a condition— It's a conduit. There's all the difference in the world between loving someone from a distance and loving them forever and ever, forever and ever, amen, you know. I'm going to love you forever and ever, forever and ever, amen. Now, I had this girl that I met a long time ago. I can't tell you all the stories too long, but... For years, I said, "I I think it would be wonderful, wonderful if I could know her entirely. In fact, I'm convinced that it would be wonderful, but I still don't know her. But on the 16th of August, 1975, I got to know her. I got married. I was single. So was she. We knew about one another. We didn't know one another. 48 years later, what I thought was pretty good, I'm telling you, it was great. It is great. Becoming a Christian is a bit like getting married. You go to the front of the church when you get married, and a fellow says to you, "Eh, sir, will you have this woman? And you say yes. Never ask you how you feel. Same thing in reverse. So imagine God the Father stands, and to the front comes Jesus Christ and you. And God the Father says, My son, do you receive this sinner? Jesus says, Yes, Father, I died for her. And then he says, And how about you? Do you receive this Savior? Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that the entrance of your word brings light. Shine light into our hearts so that we might trust unreservedly in Jesus and that in trusting him we might not become proud, but that we might become tender hearted and merciful to those who struggle on the sea of life. So that the Cow Mountain Presbyterian Church may continue to shine as a beacon into the brokenness of an affluent and needy world. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.